Last week we began to see that Paul had switched his instruction on how, as believers, we are to, to conduct ourselves in the world to how we are to conduct ourselves amongst one another in our worship service and what our attire should be and what our attitude should be and what our actions should be. And uh, throughout Paul's letter, we have been reminded often of the centrality of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of the gospel message. And Paul has pointed out many times throughout this letter how the Corinthians, in, in, in all their sin, they have moved away from the message of the cross of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. And so he's trying to bring them back to this. And, you know, biblical spirituality finds its shape and its focus in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the Corinthian uh, congregation would come together to remember Christ's death for him uh, in, in the fellowship meal that he had inst instituted, the behavior of some was a profound denial of the very realities that they were celebrating. Now, we need to understand that, you know, on the first Sunday of every month, we gather together and we, we come to the Lord's table. In Paul's day, they had a big meal that they would do. Uh, you know, after the service this morning, we're having a meal back here with uh, got plenty of food for everybody to stay. But this is what they would do. And they would come together to eat the Lord's Supper, but they were doing it in a very ungodly way. And it's, it's essential meaning was denied by their practice of it. You've heard me say many times, what you believe will determine how you live. And what you believe about God's word will determine how you live in accordance with that word. The better we know God's word, the better we are equipped to live a godly life. And so the, the Corinthians, Paul is saying to them here, we're going to see, he's saying, look, you're coming together for this big meal together, this fellowship meal, and you're doing it in the name of Christ, he said, but you're doing it in a very unchristlike way. Look at verse 17. Paul says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Many of the problems at Corinth seem to have been caused by the failure of the newer believers in Christ to realize how radical was the break that had to be made with their former lifestyle. Now, I want to interject here something very important. Many, many people in our world today, many people who are in churches today, claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They claimed that there was a time when they confessed their sin, they, they repented of their sin, and they began to follow Christ. But the lifestyle they live outside the church denies that, that, that uh, faith, denies what they claim to believe. When we come to believe in Jesus, there is a radical change that takes place in your life. You no longer love the world. You no longer think like the world. You begin to, to think and act like the one whom you follow. And we say we follow Jesus Christ. And so here in Corinth, Paul says, look, he says, you say you're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. He says, but let me tell you something. That's not what you're doing. He said, that's not the Lord's Supper at all. Uh, he says, you, you, you have made a mockery of it. You know, th this, pa this passage begins with a sharp rebuke there in verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I don't commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Their gatherings were, in order to, to meet together, revealed how divided they actually were. Now, it almost seems like Paul here contradicts himself in the following verse. There in verse uh, 19, I'm sorry, 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. And then he says, But there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And, 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 and there Paul is, in verse 19, is explaining how God's working out his purposes, even in the failures and the immaturity of the congregation. Now, when he says there are divisions among you, there was those in the church who were rich. There were those in the church who were poor. There were slaves. There were non-slaves. And when they come together for the Lord's Supper, they all separated and went their separate ways. And these didn't associate with those. And those didn't associate with these. And Paul says, do you have any idea? Paul says, do you have any idea what the cross of Christ did? And he says, this is not to be this way. Uh, th this is a recognition that the very congregation, uh, every congregation will be made up of both genuine and false believers. So Paul says, or Jesus said, by their fruits, you will know them. You can look at me and you can say, there's a man that claims to know Christ. There's a man that claims that he's been born again, that he's been saved, that he follows the Lord Jesus Christ. But did you know that I can tell you that, but you do not need to take that at face value. You need to look at me and say, do we see fruit in his life? Do we see the fruit of the Spirit? Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Do I see a man who, who, who desires to be a godly man, a man who desires to live holy in this world? There is fruit. But you see, I do the same thing with you. We are to look at each other. And Paul's saying to them, he's saying, look, you claim to be followers of Christ, but the way you're conducting yourselves, the way you're acting during this, this love feast is what it was, a love feast meal. He says, it betrays what you say you believe. He said, you're not acting like those who are godly. 
So, so Paul sees the Corinthians' behavior as an infallible indicator of who it is uh, who has God's approval, those who are genuine Christians and those who are not. And, and you know, verse 19, when he says, there, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Do you know that there are times within a church when God will allow trouble to come into that church, God will allow some kind of division to happen in that church for the sole purpose of determining who's real and who's not. Now, don't get me wrong. God knows who's real and who's not. But I don't, and you don't. But sometimes these things happen in order to show us who are genuine Christians and who are not. And so this is what Paul means by that. Uh, it is the false converse that Paul addresses in the rest of this passage in verses 20 through 22. And Paul says that they're not really celebrating the Lord's Supper since Christ would never own such attitudes as what they're doing. I remember I pastored a church one time, and it was a small church like this. And every month, like we do, they would have a meal together after church on Sunday sometime. And there was this, this, this family of this young mother who had four little girls who would come, and, and she was a single mother. She worked three jobs trying to support her family. Uh, they were very poor, didn't have much. And so they, the, the first times that when they started coming in, I'd say, hey, you know what? You need to stay with us. You need to eat. She'd say, I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I didn't bring anything. And this, I'd say, you know what? Doesn't matter. We got plenty of food. You can stay here and eat with us. So. This went on for some time, and so finally she got into the habit of staying, but she never was able to bring food. And I had this lady in the church came to me, and she said, look, she said, you know, this lady and her four daughters, they come in here, and they're eating every time. They don't ever bring anything. And I said, so what? She said, well, it's not right. And I said, so you want me to tell them you didn't bring anything, so you don't get to eat? She said, well, yeah. And I said, well, I'm not doing that. And, you know, I saw one of the most remarkable things I ever saw in a church happen. Uh, there were some ladies who overheard this conversation between me and this lady. And some of the ladies in the church got together, and every time we would have a fellowship meal, they would bring an extra dish and say that she brought it. They would cook an extra dish and bring it. And, and, and that's what Paul here, this is what was going on in Corinth. There were the rich who were, who were eating all the food and drinking all the wine, and they were getting full, and they were getting drunk. And the poor over here, they don't have anything. And Paul says, you, you completely missed what this is all about. Uh, the meal that Jesus gave to his church is, as a special remembrance of himself uh, was being so desecrated, Paul says, that it can no longer even be described as being his. Rather than honoring the Lord's self-sacrificing love, these greedy people, uh, they can't wait to fill their own stomachs regardless of how it affects anybody else. Now, Paul's already talked about that once or twice here in Corinthians, how as a believer, every decision I make, every move I make, everything I do affects someone else. And we often don't think about that. We think, well, this is what I want to do. If you don't like it, that's too bad. Paul says, you've got, you don't have the attitude of Christ. Listen, everything, every decision I make affects my wife. Every decision I make affects you as a congregation. Every decision you make affects your spouse or your children. Every decision you make affects me as a pastor. 
And Paul says, you know, sometimes you have to, to you know, this is, this is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him what? Deny himself. It's not about me. It's no longer a selfish attitude. And we see the example in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord's Supper when we come. What do we remember? We remember that He died for us. He didn't have to do that. Jesus didn't have to die. He could have called 10,000 angels and they would have set Him free. But He didn't do that. He went to the cross willingly and He gave His life bearing our sin, bearing the very wrath of God because He put us first. Is that the example that we set forth to others? Many in Corinth, they were poor and they were needy and they were going without. The cross, Paul says, spells the end of all human pride. All distinctions of wealth or education or birth or background. The cross gets rid of all of that. As somebody, I believe it was Charles Spurgeon, once said, we need to understand that at the cross... The ground is level. There's no one more important than anyone else. But the very meal that they should have uh, should have been the enactment of the unity in Christ and in the gospel had become an expression of division uh, through pride and selfishness and envy. Verse 22, Paul says, shall I commend you in this? He says, no, I will not. How selective are we in our fellowship? I'll tell you another example. At another church I pastored one time, we had this family come in. And as soon as they walked in the door, everybody in the church turned and stared at them. And they sat down. They were friendly people. They were nice. And after the service, I had someone come to me and says, you're not going to go visit them, are you? I said, well, I've already set up a time to go visit. They said, well, we don't, we don't need them here. He said, you need to tell them to leave. And I said, as soon as I go to them black people and tell them to leave, I'm going to be right behind them. That's an ungodly attitude. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, look, how selective are we in our fellowship? And, and I have seen this, not just, you know, people of a different color, people of a different culture, people who are poorer than we are, people who are just different than we are. And Paul says, this is not what the cross teaches us. At the cross, all sinful divisions are obliterated, and every individual uh, prays the same prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, let me clarify something here. When Paul talks about that we should not make distinctions among those who are different than us and all of this, he is not talking about us being accepting of sinful lifestyles. That is not at all what he's talking about, so please don't get that idea. He's talking about those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, how many contemporary Christian congregations are still divided over these things? You know, certain members of the church are despised and degraded. And how can such a church call itself by Christ's name?
And Paul's getting here. He's saying, look, uh, he says, you say you're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. He said, but you're not. He said, that's not what this is. He said, I am not going to commend you in this. He says, I will, I, I will not do anything about this, but tell you what the Lord's Supper truly is. Now, I want you to listen very closely to the remainder of this sermon, folks, because coming together to the Lord's table is one of the most important things we do as a, as a congregation. It is one of the most important things you will do as a believer. Now, we're not going to get into it this week, but don't miss next week because, you know, same bat channel, same bat time, because Paul's going to tell us what happens when you do this in an ungodly way, and it's not a very pretty sight. We'll see that uh, next week. But, but Paul says, look, let me show you. Look at verse 23. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, do you hear me read this? The first Sunday of every month, I read that passage right there when we come to the Lord's Supper. The only answer, Paul says, is to return to the original supper and to the Lord's own words that he instituted. Uh, so to remind them of how far they had drifted from the original intentions of Jesus, we, have, we must go back to the upper room. It's the night before Jesus has been crucified. He is eating the Passover meal with his disciples. They are sitting there at the table. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. You know, and I find it interesting that nobody knew it was Judas. You know, they, John said, well, Lord, is it me? Peter said, Lord, is it me? They all said, is it me? Jesus knew who it was. But it's uh, Paul, it's interesting that Paul inserts this in there, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And so they're, they're, they're there, uh, and Jesus tells Judas, he says, what you have to do, do quickly. And you all know the story. Judas went, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He turned him over to the uh, ruling authorities. And so, but, but we see that the upper room was also a source of division when Jesus was betrayed. And ultimately, that's what the behavior of the Corinthians at the Lord's table was. It was a betrayal of Christ. It was a betrayal of his values, a betrayal of his very sacrifice. Did you know that you can be saved for five minutes and you are no less loved and accepted by God the Father than someone that's been saved for 50 years. You are just as, you are on the same level. Now, your maturity level may not be the same, but as far as God is concerned, the, the one who has, is, is a newly Christian is just as accepted and loved by God as someone who's been a Christian forever. And so Paul says that we need to understand here that to, to betray the values and the sacrifice of Jesus. It was at that hour of darkness that Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here the Lord Jesus clearly teaches his substitution in his death, his bearing of God's righteous wrath, his taking of the just punishment for sin on behalf of his people. You know, we were talking about this morning in Sunday school. We kind of got into a little bit of Calvinism talk. Somebody saying, you know, uh, someone asked, told me, said, you know, it's not fair to say that God saves some and refuses to save others. And, and I pointed out, we don't want fair because fair sends us all to hell. We want mercy. We want grace. And this is what the cross did. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what he's about to do. Uh, and, and here he clearly teaches that he is going to be the substitute. You and I are guilty of sin against God. We have been uh, declared guilty and given the sentence of death. Not just physical death, but eternal death. And there's nothing we can do. There's nothing you can do. No amount of good works will ever save you. No amount of, uh, of going to church will ever save you. No amount of Bible reading will ever save you. Only Christ saves. And that's it. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can save us. And so here we see that Jesus, we have been declared guilty by God. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve hell. But Jesus came... He was God in the flesh. He took upon himself human flesh and he went to a cross. And there on that cross, he took my sin. He took your sin. Isaiah 53 tells us that he laid on him, God laid on him, the iniquity of us all. And Jesus died, bearing the wrath of God. You know that there is probably not a form of execution more brutal than crucifixion. Now, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Persians invented it. But the Romans perfected it. And when someone was crucified, they would first be taken as Jesus was, and they would be beaten within an inch of their life. And then they would be taken up on a hill. Jesus was taken up on Golgotha's hill, the place of the skull. And they would have the spikes driven through their wrists and through their feet. And they would hang. And as people who were crucified died from asphyxiation, as they hung there, they would have to raise up to get a breath. And Jesus hung on that cross for six hours. One Friday. And we read that they would go and they would break their legs. The reason they broke their legs is so they couldn't breathe and couldn't raise up to breathe and so they would die. When they got to Jesus, they found he was already dead. But we find here's Jesus having been beaten and bloodied, nailed to a cross. And you know what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they didn't. They, they had no clue what they were doing. But I want to tell you something, folks. The cross was not a tragedy. The cross was the plan of God from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world. 
And Jesus here in instituting the Lord's Supper, he's saying, I'm doing this for you. Remember my my body. Remember my blood. The Passover reference here is, is inescapable. You remember back in the book of Exodus when the Israelites are about to leave Egypt and Moses is going to lead them out and the God's, Moses, uh, Pharaoh won't let the people go. So God sends the different plagues. And the last one that he sends is the death angel. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die unless they take and they put the blood of a lamb across the doorpost. And you know, Dr. J. Vernon McGee likes to point out that if you had been there and you had seen the Israelite take the blood and put it across their doorpost, that when you looked at it, what you saw was a cross. And so... The angel of the Lord comes all through the land of Egypt, and all the firstborn of Egypt are dead, but the firstborn of Israel are alive. You know why? Not because they were Israelites, not because they were good, but because of the blood. And that's the picture that we have here of Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. Every firstborn Israelite son who was redeemed in, in, in Egypt experienced the substitution of the lamb for himself. You remember when Abraham prayed for years for God to give him a son? He had no heir. And he prayed and said, Lord, please give me a son. And God comes and he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, well, God, here's the problem with that. I'm 100 and Sarah's almost 100. And God says, so? <laughs> You're still going to have a son. So she gives birth to a son. They call him Isaac. And God says to him, he says, in Isaac shall all your seed be blessed. In Isaac is the promises that I've made to you. Everything about the nation of Israel was, was bound up in that one man, Isaac. And Abraham, he says, now I know, God, that you are going to, God said, I'll make your people as, as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the sky without number. Now that I have a son. And then God comes a few years later and says, hey, you know that son I gave you? I want you to take him to Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him. By the way, did you know that many biblical scholars believe that Mount Moriah is the exact same place of Mount Calvary that Jesus was crucified? And so Abraham... He takes Isaac up on the mountain. He's about to sacrifice him. He has the knife in his hand. He's about to plunge it into Isaac, and the Lord stops him. But you know, on the way up there, Isaac says, Father, I see the wood, I see the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, the father of all who believe, said, God will provide the lamb. And several thousand years later, in that upper room, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, 
I am that lamb. I am that substitute. Jesus came to be a substitute for you and me. Listen, folks, we need to understand <clears throat> every single sin, every single sin in the history of the world must be paid for. Every single sin, no matter how we, you know, we talk about big sins and little sins. God doesn't see big sins and little sins. God sees sin. I want to tell you something. Every single sin must be dealt with. Every single sin must be paid for. It will either be paid for by you in hell for eternity, or it will be paid for by Christ. And this is what he came to do. Could a believer, could a Christian ever forget such amazing love? The Lord instituted this supper not only to remind us of what he's done, but to prompt us to the appropriate response in newness of life. You see, every time we come to the Lord's table, we don't just remember that Jesus was our sacrifice. We remember that Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't just remember that Jesus died for us. We remember that Jesus lives for us. And how do I respond to that? How do I? This, this is to be a, a way of, of, of the Lord telling me, okay, you remember what I did for you? You remember the price I paid for your salvation? Now, how could you do anything but go out and live for me? How could you live any way except holy? And so uh, the, when the Bible calls us to remember a truth, it's always in order to provoke us to an appropriate action. That I'm to remember the death of Christ. And as a result, I'm to say, you know, I belong to him. I'm a slave of righteousness. I belong to Christ. Participation in the Lord's Supper is always a challenge for us to live a godly life. Listen, I, I think that this is one of the issues that is so lacking in the American church. We think, we, we, we like to tell people, come to Jesus. He loves everybody. And, and if you will just come to him, he'll save you. you. Go live your life any way you want to. You know, it's all right. Jesus has saved you. And I want to tell you, all of that is a lie. All of it. But we have millions walking around who believe they're saved because they've been told that. But I want to tell you something, folks. The Bible is very clear. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. Deny myself. I don't matter anymore. I am not number one. Now, I want to tell you, I have a real problem with that because I like being number one. I like being the person of attention in my life. But Jesus teaches me not to be that way. Okay, I, I said that because I don't want you to get you to thinking that I'm all perfect with this and everything because I, I battle with it just like we all do. But the point is that when we come to the cross and we recognize we, every month when we come together. And by the way, Jesus, uh, Paul says, or Jesus said, uh, as long as you do this, as often as you do this, you can do this every day. You can do it once a week. We do it once a month. It doesn't matter. As long as we do it, 
is what's important. And we must remember that we've been called uh, to remember this truth so that it will challenge me. And I remember what Christ, the price that he paid for my salvation. And I go out and I want to live my life in a way that pleases him. And only him. You know, I, I read something the other day. I, it reminded me of this. I thought about how appropriate that was. That Paul, writing to a young preacher named Timothy in 1 Timothy, that basically in that letter, what he says to him is this. Timothy, I am going to preach the gospel until they kill me. And when I'm done, you preach the gospel until they kill you. Somebody asked a preacher one time, said, what is wrong with preachers in America. And he said, nobody wants to kill them anymore. That's what's wrong with them. I want to tell you, that's what's wrong with all of us. Because if we live a life that is a godly life that Paul and Jesus is calling us to here in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians, I want to tell you something, folks. The world will hate you. Your family members will hate you. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. He said, I came to bring a sword. He said, where members of own household will be against you. And if we are going to live a godly life and walk the way, a holy life, the way that God, Jesus, has called us to, by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, we're going to be hated. Let me ask you something. Who hates you because of your Christianity? Who hates you because of your walk with Christ? That's a way for us to see... And so participation in the Lord's Supper always challenges me to live a godly life. And in moving from the bread to the wine, there in verse 25, he said, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And here Paul emphasizes the unity of relationship with God, and therefore that we have with, uh, with other believers in, in a covenant community created through the shed blood of the cross. Hey, listen, I want to tell you, I have... So I'm going to get this straight. I have two stepsisters, one half-sister, and three half-brothers. And as far as I know, none of them are saved. None of them could care less about God, Christ, or anything. June, did you know you're more my sister than they are? Tom, did you know you're more my brother than they are? See, you're stuck with me for eternity. There's coming, if they die in their sin, I will never see them again. We are a family. We are a covenant community because of one thing, the shed blood of the cross. We've all been washed in that blood. You know, that's a wonderful song. We should have sang that this morning if I'd have thought about it. There's power, wonder-working power. Where? In the blood of the Lamb. In the blood of the Lamb. So... <clears throat> Jesus said, this, covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We now move from Passover to Mount Sinai. When, they, when, when, when the, after the Passover was done, when the, the angel passed over those who had the blood, and the Israelites, they leave Egypt. Moses is leading them. They go across the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai. Anybody know what happened at Mount Sinai? Come on, you've all seen the movie. God's up there and he's writing with his finger the Ten Commandments, the law of God. 
And this is where we move from this, uh, where Israel received the law. Uh, Turn with me to Exodus chapter 29. Or you don't have to, I'll just read it. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 24, verse 7 and 8. Says, then he took the bud of the, the book of the covenant. This is Moses. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it at the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. In accordance with all these words. Now notice the people said all that the Lord has said we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and put it on them and said you're bound to it. Listen folks you and I as believers we have been uh, washed in the blood of Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. They have been washed away. And we have only one recourse for that, and that is obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Remember what Jesus said about his commandments? He says, the first one, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he said, the second is like it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you take, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That takes care of the first four commandments. And loving your neighbor as yourself takes care of the last six. On that day, Israel declared herself bound in obedience to the sovereign God, set apart from all the nations to live as a holy people. Let me tell you something, folks. That has not changed. You and I who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have been sanctified through his blood, we have been called by our sovereign Lord to be set apart from this world, to be set apart and to live as holy people. I have said this a million times. I will say it a million more if I have to. Search your heart this morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a desire to live a holy life pleasing to God? If not, you have only one thing you can do, and that is get saved. Because if you don't have that, you're not saved. Because the Spirit of God lives in you if you're saved. And that's His desire, is that we live holy lives. But this is what we've been called to. The blood of the new covenant is no less demanding for those of us today covered by the precious blood of Christ. We are still called to be set apart. We are still called to be obedient. We are still called to be holy. And that's what the Lord's Supper tells us. And in verse 26, the situation is shown to be even more solemn and demanding. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation to God and men. It's a declaration of the good news about our faith in the death of Jesus Christ. And the eating and the drinking commit us to an immediate and active public response. The elements of the Lord's Supper confronts each one of us with a personal challenge. 
Ask yourself, do I believe that Christ's body was broken for me? Do I believe that his blood makes me a member of his body? Do you believe that? To eat and drink at the Lord's table implies not only saving faith, but a lifestyle lived under the active lordship of Christ. It challenges us to this. It's an active identification with a Christ who has identified with me. You know, the, uh, the church only has two ordinances. Some call them sacraments. I prefer the word ordinance. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both picture our union with Christ. You see, in the Lord's Supper, we are identified in His death. And in baptism, we are identified in His resurrection. Raised to newness of life. You know, the last three words of verse 26 put the whole issue firmly uh, into an even more demanding eternal perspective until he comes. Did you know that Jesus is coming back? That will have do one of two things for you. It will scare you to death or it will bring you eternal joy. But Paul says, as often as we do this, we proclaim his death until he comes. The Christ whose death is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper is the Christ who has risen from the dead. He is the Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the Christ who one day will come in great power and glory to judge the nations of the earth. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming. And Paul says, do this. And let me tell you something else that ought to bring joy if you're a Christian to your heart. You know, in, in, I think it's in the book of uh, Matthew. When Jesus instituted this supper, he also said something else to him. He said, I will not sit down with you again and partake of this until... We do it again in my kingdom. Every time we come together to the Lord's Supper, we need to remember that one day we will sit down with Christ himself and partake of this in remembrance until he comes. How can his death be proclaimed by those who are unwilling to die to themselves whose attitude of despising others, regardless of their race or their position or their education, how can we proclaim his death if we're unwilling to do that and deny the central purpose of this event and the claim that we seem to be making? You see, each time you take that little cracker and you eat it, each time you take that little drink of grape juice or wine, whichever you do. Every time you do that, you're saying, Lord, I believe this. And Lord, I'm going to act upon this. And Lord, I'm going to live my life in accordance with this. And to leave here and not do that is dangerous. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says it is better not to make a vow to God than to make it and not keep it. 
And as I said, next week we're going to see the rest of what Paul says about the Lord's Supper. And he's going to say, look, there are some of you who are doing this in an unworthy manner. Okay? I'll give you, I'll give you a little something to look forward to next year. They died. They died because they did it in an unworthy manner. That's how serious this is. And we need to learn to take it serious. Let's pray. Father, oh God, we thank you this morning <clears throat> that though we were dead in our trespass and sins, Father, that you have made us alive in Christ. And I pray, God, that if there's one here listening that has never acknowledged their sin before you, never confessed their sin, never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that, Father, this might be the day that today they would hear your voice and come, repent and believe and be saved. And Father, for those of us who are saved, we thank you, God. Thank you for the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blood that was poured out on our behalf. Thank you for the substitute that Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, we thank you that no amount of good works will make us acceptable to you. We thank you that no amount of church going or Bible reading will make us acceptable to you. We thank you, Father, that only as we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ alone are we acceptable to you. Thank you for sending him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being that substitute for us, the eternal Lamb of God. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's turn to hymn number 379. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>